0: This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Greg Bench, Trey Whetstone, Amy Swan, Gilman, Joel Robertson, and ooh, Blake from Midweek Matinee. Thank you all. Now on to the episode.
1: Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined as always by my trusty sidekick,
0: Jackson the Sun and I am so excited to start this November off with the best Thanksgiving horror movie of all time that I had never seen before this episode. Oh wow
1: that saves me a question. Well folks we are a spoiler podcast we do spoil the movies we discuss and sadly Halloween 2020 is past and we are moving into the Thanksgiving season and that means family. So this month we're discussing dysfunctional families in horror movies, and we kick it off with The Stepfather from
0: 1987.
1: Morrison isn't his real name. What is it? God knows we don't. His personal history was falsified. His prints were untraceable. It was possible Morrison had done it before. You can call me sentimental, I don't care. I have beautiful friends, I have a wonderful new family so what do you think can we give this little guy a home sure that's my girl
2: he's a wonderful man and he wants
1: to care for us
2: i don't know i just there's just something about him
1: Oh, that guy in Bellevue who killed his whole family. Cut him up with knives. Maybe they disappointed him. All we need is a... You're a good boy. He's a good boy. He'll a good boy? He's had his little angel. Shut Hi, honey. just some crazy creep. Don't you talk to your father that way. He's not my father. How can you be fair to let him teach you? Stop it! We have to talk, honey. About what? About what is happening to our family.
2: I'm taking care of it. He scares me, Dr. Bondrick. Who am I here?
1: Help me! Help! You're a very bad girl stepfather and so in order to truly cover this film we called on someone who knows this movie well and uh, is currently on as many podcasts as his buddy daryl um welcome back gilman joel robinson
2: i am thrilled to be here and i take that um I, t- I take that as a compliment, actually, because uh, I know we bust Daryl's chops a lot because he's on a ridiculous number of podcasts. Yes. But, but yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's getting OK. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on a few, but it, it hasn't gotten completely uh, crazy yet. Uh, and some of them I've been on, like, like the werewolf one, Hammond and I recorded that in advance. It's done. So it's kind of, you know, those kind I can do all day long. It's it's, you know, the sort of ongoing thing that like Daryl does that. Yeah, yes. that's, that's a lot. But no, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be back. Uh, for the listeners out there, I promise this time, Jackson will get a word in edgewise.
1: <laughs> I swear. Well, this time around, I actually, um, you, what I used to do on the podcast was I would type up my notes and then I would print them off just to be safe. And five minutes before we started recording The Hills Have Eyes, I went to print them off. And so I go print them off, hit what I thought was print, I go to get a glass of water. and I come back. I had actually discarded it. And so I had no notes and I was like scrambling around just to write down something coherent. Um, so that's as much on me as anyone, but for some reason people love that episode. So there you go. Um, the stepfather, the IMDB synopsis reads, and it looks like maybe they read, maybe, I don't know, maybe they watched part of the movie. Um, After murdering his entire family, a man marries a widow with a teenage daughter in another town and prepares to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. Was he really preparing to do it all over again?
0: Mm, I'm not not
1: so
2: sure. No, I think he's preparing to.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. All right. So, Joel, when did you first see the stepfather?
2: Okay, so my earliest memory of the stepfather is the video box. Uh, the one where Joe Sholin is, is holding the puppy in the foreground and you see the silhouette, you know, of Jerry with the the butcher knife, you know, over top of her looming ominously. I remember seeing that because the movie came out in 87. It would have probably been in video stores shortly thereafter. I'm guessing 88 ish. Yeah. Uh, I was I was I was 12. And that was also the same year that I actually got a stepfather. <laughs> So, oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't see the movie right away, and I feel like it's weird. This is one of those movies that despite my love for it and it being in my you know, top 10 and everything else, I couldn't tell you precisely. Whereas other movies, I could. This movie, it's very I can't quite tell you precisely, but I think it may have been on cable because I know I recorded it off of some movie channel. Because I remember having it on VHS with my label, you know, written out and everything. So I'm I'm going to say that I first saw it on cable, most likely. I don't think I rented it.
0: Okay. So, Jackson, you already answered this. You just saw this this week? Yep, that's right. Uh, my earliest memory of the stepfather is going on Tubi and typing in the stepfather. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't really have a fun story for that one, but I will say that... I went in relatively fresh. Uh, I did read the summary, which, you know, I think I, I would have preferred going in not knowing anything. In a perfect world, I would have said, oh, a movie called The Stepfather. I'll click on this and see what it's about. And then saw the opening scene and be, been very surprised. But uh, there's really no getting around it. If you want people to be interested in this movie, you got to kind of give away the first twist. Um, but... Yeah, I, I did enjoy myself, didn't know anything going into it, and uh, I was not expecting where it was going, uh, though I can't say that uh, I'm in the majority there, because I've read a lot of Letterboxd reviews calling this the most predictable movie of all time, which I disagree with, but anyways, we'll get into that.
1: Well, yeah, I, I like Joel. I saw this on, what sold me was the VHS box cover. Uh, probably, Joel, I think you're right, 88 sometime. And like a good, rebellious film buff, um, I was a teenage heathen, folks. um, And so I partied like it was 1999 until 1997. Um, And I had been a runaway. I ran away from home in 87. I had a job, though, by 88 and was um, living on a guy's couch. But I, I made sure that I always had money for the essentials, beer, cigarettes, and video rentals. And so I rented this, I remember because there was a video store literally across the street from where I was living. Um, I think it was just called the movie store, a mom and pop shop. I walked in, I saw this cover. I said, oh, I got to see this. And I was sold and I absolutely fell in love with it. And so if you haven't seen folks, if you haven't seen the stepfather first, pause this go watch it. As Jackson said, it's streaming on 2B TV right now for free and you can get a account for free. So you definitely need to check it out. Um, but I think this poster is one of the best posters uh, that I remember from the eighties. Joel, would you agree with that?
2: I would not only agree with it, Matt, I have it. I actually wow. went on eBay a few years back. I actually have two, I have two versions. I have the one that is the, best known, the video box version. I got that on eBay a few years ago, but before that, even I had found one that I didn't even at the time know exist, knew I didn't know it existed, which is the one where he's dressed like what the original um, family is Morrison, right? Isn't that where he's got the beard? Yes. Henry,
1: I think. Yeah. Henry Morrison or something like that.
2: Where he looks kind of like a deranged Bob Ross a little bit.
1: Yes, (laughs) yes, he does. (laughs) A little bit.
2: And it's, but it's the poster is him in front of the mirror. And it's it's where it's written. It's also in the trailer where he's writing. Who am I here? Yes. And it's a question mark. And he's already written it. And it's him staring into the mirror. So it's kind of like you're a little behind him and a little over his shoulder. And I love that. But so I have both of those posters. I have the laser disc that also has the original video art on it. Um, I, I had stuff two on VHS. Uh, I have the shout factory, scream factory, whatever it is. The is. I'm set. So, yes, wow. to answer your question. I love this movie. It is number two on my top ten. And whoever says this movie's predictable.
1: Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, Jackson. By the way, did you what did, did you see the poster? Because the one, the poster that Joel's talking about is the one they have on Tubi, I believe, where he's staring in the mirror.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, I love that poster. I didn't know what it meant going into the movie. I was like, who am I here? What is that, that, that doesn't, that seems like a Yoda ism or something. But (laughs) once I understood what it meant, once he says it in the movie in the context of that scene, I was like, Ooh, I got chills. Um, and that, that was probably my fit, my favorite part of the movie. I can understand why they put it on the poster. Um, but I have seen the one that he was talking about, uh, probably on the, on the, the, home video release with I think it was the
1: first VHS release I think yeah Yeah.
0: I've actually seen that on DVDs like I went to Goodwill and saw that on a DVD which was like an early 2000s DVD so I've seen both posters they're both good and they don't give you that much it doesn't give that much of the plot away um but yeah I I just think 80s and we talked about this partly in a Patreon bonus pod that 80s posters on on VHS uh and and uh, in the theaters were just fantastic because they were all so eye-catching
1: Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. Something happened in the nineties. I'm not sure what. We, yeah, shop. we just lost. I mean, I remember like there is a poster for scream that I'm okay with, with a girl like covering her mouth and yeah,
2: the original one. Yep.
1: Yeah, but then the one they came out with on the VHS with just like the it looks like a CW show just was terrible. Yes,
2: and it's funny because that stepfather, the original video release one, is actually photos. It's not art. It's not like you're you know it's like a hand drawn painted. It is like uh, photographic, Um, and it almost it almost has this almost like a lo-fi family collage vibe to it in a weird way. And I think that's why it works so well for me. But look, and I I love Photoshop. I use Photoshop on the regular, but I think that. A mix of Photoshop with, like you mentioned, that sort of CWWB, whatever it is now, yeah. uh, you know, vibe where they had to put the, you know, all the stars front and center. And then that, and that it's like every poster is like that. And it just, I don't know, it loses something for me.
1: Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about the plot and the screenplay, um, supposedly inspired by the true story of John List, right? A New Jersey man who killed his family in 1971 and was on the run until 1989. And he was nabbed after his story was shown on America's Most Wanted, which I don't. Know. Joel, do you remember that show?
2: I not only remember it; I watched it very regularly, and I remember that episode.
1: You remember I, that episode, really? I,
2: yes, I remember because uh, that that was there was early, the nascent Fox network, right? And you had cops, and then America's Most Wanted would come on. And I remember watching that episode where they brought out the bust of the age enhanced view of what John list would look like. And the reason why I remember it is because it terrified me because I don't, I, I, again, at that point, I don't think I'd seen this movie yet, but I knew of it. And that story, like hearing that that actually happened just uh. amped up my childhood terror to the nth degree. So I, re, I, that was, that episode has always been burned into my head. I actually remember seeing that episode.
1: And for some reason, um, your home state where you still reside seems to attract serial killers for some it really reason. Sucks. It really does. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, so also at the same time, the screenwriter's own stepdaughter, apparently he was having issues with. And so that's kind of where he took inspiration. So we have Terry O'Quinn first as Henry Morrison, who is when we open is nonchalantly washing his family's blood off his hands and strolls by their corpses. and then we f- and, and, and he's whistling as he does so. And we flash forward to a year later where Henry has become Jerry Blake, I believe, now a real estate agent. And by the way, this guy's got a lot of licenses, mm-hmm. um, who has married Susan Maine, who has a 16 year old stepdaughter, Stephanie, played by Jill Shawan who is not happy about her new family situation and the tension slowly builds. So I feel like anybody who has listened to you podcast knows that this is almost a rhetorical question but what did you think of you 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 know you've meddled around in independent filmmaking you you know you're not just a uh, somebody who watches movies what did you think of the screenplay? Uh
2: I like it quite a bit especially because it was at least story credit wise Brian Garfield, who wrote the novel for Death Wish... Um, is oh is, I didn't know that yes so Brian Garfield was one of the people behind this also a woman named Carolyn Lefcourt, who I have done research for and the only thing I could find is in the show show notes that tells you where my head is the liner notes in the Blu-ray for Stepfather they mention that she was actually I believe like a some kind of like story editor for maybe Disney or some major studio hmm. but I no, like her only credits are this movie and then the characters as they were applied to the other the sequels and whatnot, like it's like, she has no other, I would love to figure out where, who she is and where she is. Cause she's got a story credit on this thing. Now, Donald E. Westlake is a prolific, prolific novelist. He created the Parker novels, um, which, oh. a, 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 and specifically his pseudonym for those was Richard Stark, which inspired oh. ready for this, ready for this deep dive. There. Now we're going to straight up retro movie geek on you. Jackson, it is the pseudonym inspiration for Richard Bachman, the first part oh. of it for Stephen King, because he he knew about Richard Stark being Donald D. E. Westlake's pseudonym, and he picked the Richard. And then in The Dark Half, which of course was a, a story about him releasing, you know, that 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 pseudonymous part of his personality, yeah. everything, that character's name is George Stark. So King. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, yes, I love the I love like the backstory behind everybody involved with the screenplay, except for Carolyn, who I would love to find out who she is. Like, I feel like that's a mystery that needs to be solved. But as far as the story goes, it's a very simple, straightforward story, and it is not intended to be a whodunit. And what's the you know, what's the plot? That's not what it is about. I mean, it's very almost like a slice of life character. Right. I mean, that's what this movie is meant to be. Like, I don't, I feel like if you go and go, oh, predictable plot. Well, yeah, he's a guy who annihilates families i mean it's not you know know, that's what he does and you know where he goes makes total sense based on the character but we know from the word jump who this guy is what he's capable of and because of that the suspense is ratcheted up to a hitchcockian level
1: yeah it's the it's the show the bomb under the table thing right He is the bomb.
2: He is. And in the comment, did you watch the commentary with Joseph Rubin, the director? I
1: I did not. No. Okay.
2: He goes into the fact that they talk because actually Michael Gingold from uh, Fangoria hosted it. So it was the two of them together. And they talk about how Jerry Blake is the bomb and we know it and we know it's going to go off. And that's where all the tension and the horror really comes from.
1: Wow. Wow. All
0: right. So Jackson, what about you as an aspiring writer and director? What did you think? I love the screenplay. Uh, I I love the fact that from, as you mentioned, from from, uh, the chilling opening to the traumatic and violent end, uh, we know exactly who the killer is. Uh, We're just waiting for the other characters to find out. I also love uh, around the the end of the second act into the third act, the unraveling that begins to appear. We learn actually more about the character uh, as this other character, Jim, uh, is trying to track down the serial killer. We learn more about him that he's possibly done this before that he's been moving from family to family all over the state, all over the area um, so yeah, I, I love the, the way that this presents itself uh, originally as just like, it's a slasher movie with a twist, but then as it gets more and more it is very classy, it does have some class, classic and classy thriller elements, uh, not mm-hmm. to say I don't have my problems with the script um, I do have some problems, mostly in the third act, but the way the setup is flawless for this movie mm-hmm Okay. Well, I, I think it's a fairly tight script. I understand what
1: people are saying on Letterboxd when they say it's predictable. In this sense, you know that there's going to be a showdown between Jerry and Stephanie. Yeah, You know that's coming. You know he's going to lose it. You know that's going to happen, especially because, and we'll talk about this scene in a minute, it's only 29 minutes in when we get the basement scene when he loses his mind. Um, so we kind of know there's a showdown coming. So in that sense, I guess it's, you know, you can say it's predictable, um, especially in 87 after we've seen Friday the 13th and the Halloween sequels and blah, 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 blah. I, I, I get that, but I will go ahead and say this. Uh, we'll talk about the cast here in a minute. Um, Terry O'Quinn Sells this movie, I mean he is absolutely incredible, and I did do a list of the hundred in my opinion, the hundred greatest horror performances of all time, and Terry O'Quinn and the Stepfather is in the top ten of nice. the greatest performances of all time, and so I think that's what really, really sells it, you know other than, and that's why I think it's a tight script I mean look. I mean, for goodness sakes, how many movies, um, great movies, can you go back and say, if you really think about it, were predictable in some sense? Did you really think Luke was going to miss, you know, destroying the Death Star?
2: Um, the answer would be no,
1: (laughs) the answer would be no. Yeah. You know, that's coming as soon as they're, as soon as they're there, it's like, okay, here's what, if you're thinking about your, here's what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen, but you know, so then you have to rely on other things to do it. Like what we don't know and what is not predictable. And we'll talk about the end here in a minute. Does the mom survive? Mm -hmm. You know, does the former brother-in-law survive? Does does he get away? You know, and so I don't think that is predictable. I think the fact that, you know, he's going to lose it, you know, he and Stephanie played by Jill Schauer, they're going to have a showdown. Yeah. okay, that's predictable. The rest of it isn't. Um, And that's why I think it's a it's a tight um, screenplay. Um, So let's go ahead and talk about it. What's considered one of, if not the most iconic scenes in this movie, um, Terry O'Quinn's character, Jerry, is having a barbecue with his clients friends and somebody brings up a newspaper article that talks about, you know, his former self where he murdered um, a family, which we talked about, and he kind of loses it. He goes into the basement and just absolutely goes berserk. Mm-hmm. And then when he notices that his stepdaughter, Jill Shauhan, is there on a dime, mm-hmm. he turns. I mean, look, folks, I've done just enough theater as a teenager and been on enough sets to know that's not easy. Mm-hmm. Joel, what do you think?
2: I, I, I don't know if it's considered hyperbole to say that Terry O'Quinn is literally an acting god. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. that might be considered by some hyperbole that scene in particular they actually talked about this that Terry O'Quinn is not a method actor they said that he would be really
1: that surprises me at all
2: apparently at all and apparently uh, at least for this I don't know if maybe you know for, maybe they've changed since then but usually actors don't I guess usually they have their process and they stick with it uh, but Joe Sholin wasn't as what well, it was not method either and so between takes he would be with an acoustic guitar playing folk music and they just, you know, kind of oh making jokes, and they're like, "Oh, hey, come on, Terry, it's time to, to come and like smash stuff up and talk about all the order that you need, or you're going to kill everybody." And that moment, they talked about how, when he comes around and you know is is facing her, that, and this is what was, you know, I hadn't watched the commentary in years, so it was really great to revisit that. But they talked about how jo- Joseph Rubin, the director, pointed out that. When Terry O'Quinn is telling her this, he's trying to, you know, come up with his, re- like, I got to come up with something quick here, explain this, you know, got to let off some steam. And and he seems like his face is relaxed. It's very gradual. It's just relaxing. But the entire time, the madness is in his eyes. Oh. It never leaves. And then when she leaves, like walks just out of, you know, being able to see his eyes, he just does this little look to the. To to his right, I think it is just a little out of the corners. I like just this little and it, like the whole face just drops in, into this menace. And yeah, yes. it is. It is the thing about it is is that his acting is why this isn't predictable because the character is not predictable. No, in that scene where he's doing the folding the newspaper and making a hat out of it, right? So yeah. they gave him this newspaper where it's talking about his murder that he did where he killed an entire family, children, and everything, and he makes it as a paper hat, which apparently was part of his audition, by the way. He mimed that. And they said he did it so well wow. that they were expecting to see the hat. Like, he did it so well the way he mimed putting this, you know, paper hat together. And then he calls this little boy over, and he gives it to him. And But in that moment, he talks, they they say, you know, how could somebody drive somebody to do that? And he goes, well, maybe they disappointed him. and. Ruben said that is the key of the character. That is it. That's it. You want to motive. They disappointed him. That wow. Was it. Because, wow. you know, the way this character is, it's very easy to just toss up like, oh, he's, you know, he's a horrible human being. He's he's evil. He's vile, blah, blah. Yeah. OK. And he's really bad. <laughs> but hmm. there's a there's a pitiable quality to him. I think he just he wants what everybody wants and he can and he's and he's really close to having it except for that part where nobody can live up to perfect. And inevitably they're going, and this by the way, is not predictability. It's inevitability. It's, Mm -hmm. it's tragedy, right? There's no way that it's not going to end up where you're going to have your kid get mouthy with you from time to time, or, you know, you're going to, your spouse is going to be like, Hey, you know, you're driving me nuts and you're gonna have this, this fight with them. It's, it's going to be there, but for this character, it, as soon as it's there and that, you know, switch, gets flipped that's all she Mm
1: -hmm. wrote
0: absolutely absolutely so jackson what did you think of that scene uh, yeah, Terry O'Quinn is is fantastic. Yeah, that, that scene was pretty chilling to me, especially the fact that he made a little paper hat out of, just just the thought of making a little paper hat to give a kid out of a story about a murder of of, of children yeah. and a family. It's like, oh, great, thanks for that. Um, and that scene where he breaks, yeah, that was the first time I, I realized just how unpredictable and how erratic he could be. Uh, I love his his moniker that he keeps coming back to, just a little order, just need a little order in here. <laughs> and uh that that that's great um You know, I think Terry O'Quinn in this movie is really creepy, partly because he reminds me a little bit of Will Forte. He kind of has the same look as Will Forte. I know I can't be the only one that that thinks there's some kind of resemblance there, which is really creepy because I'm so used to Will Forte being hilarious and kind of lovable. Even in the horror movies he's in, uh, we covered a a horror movie where uh, Will Forte was a villain, but even then he wasn't that menacing. He was just kind of, like, ridiculous. Well, that was Um, a horror comedy, right? right, Extraordinary,
1: yeah. It's a horror comedy, yeah.
0: But uh, yeah, he, he he has this, he can be kindly and he can be uh, sympathetic and understanding, but then when you remember what he is, you know, you're kind of fooled just like the family is. Uh, he starts to win you over just as he starts to win over Stephanie and her mom, and and uh, but then you remember what he's done. You you can you can never sympathize with this guy because he is a family killer, and uh, it it seems that he's done it time and time again, and he's going to do it again. Um, and so, yeah, that that's terrifying. And yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that this movie is predictable. I would say that it does have that inevitability to it, which is what makes it scary, because you know it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to unfold, but you know it's going to happen, and you know it's not going to be pretty, and it's leading up to that the whole movie. Um, but you, you you can't just be waiting on that. The whole you got to appreciate the little parts throughout. Um, there are little character moments that I like where we learn little things about. Uh, I, I want to call him... Uh, by one of his identities, but I guess Henry or Harry or whatever it is, he moves on from identity. Point is, um, you, I I know that you're w- looking forward to the showdown, but the great parts to, of this movie for me are building up this character and getting to know him bit by bit and realizing just how crazy he can be. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you brought,
2: and you brought up the order aspect of the character. Yeah, you know, I need some order. I get some order around here. Did you catch when he takes his shower? Right after he, at the beginning of the movie, cleans the blood off his hands and his face from his family shaves, does all that. He's wa- walking out with his new suit, his new his new person suit on, as they would say on Hannibal. And mm-hmm. his person suit is on and he sees one of the kids toys in the hall. He takes the time to come back to it, pick it up, put it away in the toy box. And then he goes downstairs and walks past this just oh. disgusting crime scene. Yeah.
1: I yeah. didn't notice
2: that. That's so, fantastic. I, so, yeah. And there's, and, and this time I noticed so many more things and it probably helped you know, the commentary of course, uh, but I, there was so many things like the fact that his shirts, his sweaters specifically, that the red, he's almost the only character that ever really wears red. And as it, he, when he's downstairs in his lair, as they called it, the, the, the basement, he has that really red flannel shirt. Right. And that also the shirt he's wearing at towards the end of the movie, when he tells Susan, his wife, remember, she says, you know, we got to you know, work on our family. He goes, oh, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. And he walks out the door. That's the shirt he's wearing. So it's like there's all of this stuff that's there. And, you know, I, I guess that for me, the, that 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 idea of the order, like he needs order. And when he puts that kid's toy away and then proceeds to walk past that scene as if it's not even there, like he doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't look at it. He just and then he walks out and starts whistling camp town races.
1: Yeah, yeah, which, oh, man. Um, now, this the movie is listed by a lot of people as a slasher. Um, I, I put it on my slasher list on Letterboxd because of that. I'm not so sure that it's a traditional slasher because we don't have a huge on-screen body count. Um, for what is often deemed an 80 slasher. But if you go back to that first scene, to go back to what you were talking about, Joel, when he's coming down and whistling, you know, do da, do da. That slaughter Mm -hmm. looks out of control and brutal.
0: Yeah,
2: it is. Yeah, but I would say I agree with you. I actually do not consider this a slasher movie. First off, Joseph Rubin doesn't like horror movies. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, it gets better. So not only does he not like slasher is his least favorite. Of all subgenres of horror. And he said he was on the fence. He was like starting to prep for this and getting ready to make it. And he was sitting in his car and he was, I guess, going through some sort of crisis of like, I don't want to just quote unquote make a slash. Now, I'm a fan of a lot of slashers too, So I'm not trying to be disparaging. That's Mm -hmm. his. It was his tone. Like he didn't want to make. Uh, Well, at the time, it's 87. Right. So, I mean, we're we're definitely beyond knee deep in what slasher movies are, at least how they're perceived. So he wanted to make it is is more of a a thriller. I would call it it's a subgenre of thriller. I think it's a horror movie for sure, but it's a subgenre of thriller. It's the interloper thriller. And most people would say Fatal Attraction is sort of like the one that kicks that off. You know, the person that comes into the family and just, you know, hand hand the rocks a cradle, Pacific Heights. I mean, there's a ton of them, right? And I love all of them, Mm -hmm. all of them. And this one, though, I would argue this movie is the equivalent of the original Black Christmas, how that is to inspiring subsequent slashers as Mm. Fatal Attraction is to Halloween. And so what I mean is most people would acknowledge Halloween kicks off the slasher boom in the eighties. Right. Of course. Right. Black Christmas predates it. And you could, you know, I mean, there are people who've tried, I don't, I don't, I don't really try to, but make the argument. Well, yeah, but that's what helped inspire elements of Halloween. And if without that, you know, you wouldn't have it, but I think most of us can agree, but black Christmas does predate Halloween and has a lot of the same elements and tropes and blah, blah, blah. This movie, I think, don't know if it technically predates fatal traction. They came out the same year. So it's both 87. I don't know which one, but fatal traction. I think again, everyone can agree was the big pop culture hit Sure, <laughs> between, oh, sure. between the two movies. However, I mean, any day of the week, I'd prefer this movie because I do not even get into how I kind of f- wished Michael Douglas had died at the end of that movie as well. Uh, but <laughs> so
1: because he's a scumbag,
2: a little scumbag, like I wanted the alternate ending. I, I'm not going there. You'll, you'll we'll, yeah. get into MG yeah. yeah. episode, Jackson. Yeah. Uh, and, and so but I feel like this movie kicks off that interloper. Element that suspense that subgenre really well, like I think I look at that as being its own little pocket of thriller slash horror which is that unlawful entry there's another good one so yeah yeah, that that type of movie so that's how i think of it i mean definitely slasher elements i'm a fan of part two and i like part three i would definitely argue by the time you're getting into those and certainly part three they are just straight up slasher movies that's what they are
1: yeah two it's been a while since i've seen three i don't remember a lot about it but yeah i remember two being straight up slasher but all right jackson what about you like and i want you to start with Okay, the scene where, as Joel said, he's you know, he's just whistling as he goes back past his family, his former family that he's just slaughtered. And
0: it looks like he's slaughtered them all at once. Uh, What did you think of that? Uh, yeah, absolutely chilling. That that is that's more. I think that's more gruesome and disturbing than anything a slasher could do. Because with slashers, they've kind of got that fun element, right? This is just it's just cold. It feels disgusting, especially when he walks past the the body of the little girl laying face down in a puddle of her own blood. Ugh! It's just like, and it hits you with that right away. Um, yeah, that that is definitely very disturbing. And I just want to say really quick on the genre about it. Um, I love classifying things and putting them into genres. That's one of the most fun things about movies to me. It's just like, where does this <laughs> fit? Um, and I would definitely, this is this is, Very loosely connected to the slasher genre. This is definitely more of a thriller Um, But it is a horror movie as well. It's like it's like a psychological horror movie thriller Um, I think it is really smart. It's maybe a little bit too smart to be a traditional slasher. You know, we think of like the You know all the holiday movies maybe not Halloween, but yeah, this is definitely a very smart psychological thriller and um, I've never seen Fatal Attraction Uh, I don't think you would want me to see Fatal Attraction, Dad. Uh, Uh, That would be correct. Judging by the uh, reputation, I know it has.
1: Well, you're 17, so and I probably saw it when I was like 15, so. Well, I I know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, here's the thing. I've seen Scream, and they talk about Sharon Stone. Uh, so I have a little bit of something to go off with. You know, well, that's with that, basic but...
2: instinct. That's a basic instinct thing, which also oh, that's
0: basic instinct. And that's oh, a- Michael Douglas, yeah.
2: Yeah. I see where you got that because that's Michael Douglas. But here's the thing about Fatal Attraction, Jackson, I'll save you the time. I'm not gonna tell you the ending because I like, was But Michael Douglas is like a complete tool. His character, I should say the man. I don't know him personally. The character is and just like what he does to his family. It's like it's one of those movies where by the end you're like, OK, yeah, she's off a rocker, but come on. You know, it's one of those movies Whereas the stepfather you know, like you said, throughout a lot of this movie, you kind of, even though you know what this guy did at the beginning, there's this sense of like, yeah, you know, but is he that bad? <laughs> I mean,
0: right.
2: you know, he's not, like, look at him Like he brought her a puppy. He loves dogs. And he, how can he be that bad?
0: Yeah, yeah. He's so, he's so charming that he kind of wins you over. He's, he's playing with the audience as well. Yeah.
1: Well, and that this, uh, yeah, I want to bring a couple I want to jump ahead a little bit in my notes with this. Um, because I think Terry O'Quinn can be so charming and because if the first scene we got is Jerry coming home with a puppy, we're going to like him. Mm-hmm. We're going to be rooting for him. There's a reason why we get that opening scene with him whistling past this family that he's just including a child that he's just brutally murdered because it's kind of a, the reverse of save the cat. Mm-hmm. Right, Joel? I mean, they had to have that to set yes. that up.
2: Yes. Very much so. And also, I love that we never see anything of Jerry wooing Susan. We don't see him, how he set his life up. We get that. We do get it at the end so we could put, you know, piece it together what his process is. But we never saw him do any of that. And that's the one thing I will also give credit to the screenplay for is that they intentionally kept a real sense of mystery to this character. Apparently the original draft some one of the original drafts that Westlake put together had flashbacks of Jerry getting abused, being locked in a closet by his father, being horribly abused, all this kind of stuff. And we do get a taste of that when he's in the basement and he, and he's like pointing his finger. He's like, you know, dirty, you know, he's like saying these little things, but I was thinking about how, and I, I don't, I definitely don't think this was intentional on the parts of the people who made stepfather, but being that the original black Christmas is also in my top 10 list, that movie also has that element, of course, Billy, and you don't know what his deal is and where he's, you hear, you get like little things about Agnes and this and that, and you you could start to piece together a story. And I kind of felt like that with Jerry, like you get just enough, but you never get the full, like how many times has he done this? You know, wh- you know, where, you know, why is he the way he is? I mean, it, it's, there's so many questions, but they're good questions because it makes it so much scarier <laughs> because we don't. No.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And that's what, going back to just Black Christmas real quickly before we move on, that's what makes the remake so much weaker, especially the last one. We I don't need all the backstory on Billy.
2: Yep, not at all. I not
1: don't a- need it. So, Jackson, what about you? What do you think of all that?
0: Yeah, I, I think it definitely would be less scary if we had a Halloween remake style intro thing where it just explains why he is the way he is and everything he's done in the past Uh, his whole biography that would be that would take away a lot from it especially it would take away from the shock value of the opening and you're talking about rob zombies halloween where we get
1: the the stripper mother and the
2: we all all knew what he meant matt believe me i still haven't been able to completely finish that movie i've tried multiple times
0: (laughs) yeah i i I, and yeah uh, listen okay i love rob zombie I watched Rob Zombie's Halloween the other day, and I was like, love hurts, really, for this scene? Is this what we're doing, Rob, really? <laughs> um, yeah, he, odd choices there, but again, there was a lot of meddling from the studio, so may, maybe that's maybe that's studio involvement, I'm not sure, but I doubt it, uh, judging by how much he loves to show off Sherry Moon Zombie. Anyways, um, yeah, but yeah, I, I definitely love the way that, he's he's almost like Michael Myers in a way, that his his motivations are so, like, Whenever he's doing the killings, I should say, he's so ruthless, relentless... He doesn't stop to explain himself, he just kills. <laughs> and uh, and when he turns, he turns. And at the opening, he is kind of, we don't know what his motivation is, we just see him walk by this family that he slaughtered and we're like, oh, this guy has no heart, he has no soul at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely love the way that he's portrayed and the way that his character is handled. Uh, that's a huge strength as far as it goes to the screenplay, but I think we can all agree uh, that. This character would not be the same without the performance from Terry O'Quinn. In lesser hands, this could have been a disaster. Oh,
1: yeah. I I agree. And so uh, we do have a couple of kills, um, like, you know, Stephanie's doctor, who, because Jerry's avoiding his phone calls— Decides to, you know, set up a real estate, you know, uh, meeting, which I'm not sure what the American Psychological Association ethics are on that one. But anyway, (laughs) um, and then he just takes a two by four and goes to town Um, so we can talk about that kill. But was I the only one thinking like Terry O'Quinn may have been talking to the director? and So how do we want to do this? And he goes, well, you know what? A few years ago. I got the uh, worse end of a werewolf reverend at the end of a Louisville slugger. And I kind of like to be on the other end of that.
2: (laughs) The the, the peacemaker.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: (laughs) Uh, I couldn't help
1: but thinking about silver bullet when he's just, he's just bludgeoning that guy to death with a two by four, which is, but it's pretty brutal. It's
2: very brutal. Yeah. I would curious to know. So Jackson, you know, obviously I know you're, you're, you're definitely not, not one to shy away from the gore, right? So the thing about this movie is it is a relatively mild in the gore, you know, factor. And apparently they originally shot that scene to be even more brutal, <laughs> than wow. what they showed. but Ruben, and I think this is, it's an interesting conversation. We don't have to do it for this episode, but at some point, I just want to have the conversation about directors that make great horror movies that don't, necessarily either like horror movies at all, or it's certainly not their top genre because I'd be mean, Carpenter. I'd argue he likes Western sci-fi probably more than
1: Wes Craven loves, you know, Wes yeah. Craven loves Bergman.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, and there was, I was going through the, my list the other day, I was thinking through like different directors and, and it, because I think in a way that what it is, they bring different things to the table, not to disparage huge horror fans making horror movies. A lot of times they make great horror movies too, but I just think there's something about that. And I think like for Ruben, he wanted to show some level of restraint. And I think because we don't see every impact of that two by four, it's more brutal in a way. And that also applies to what I'm sure we'll get to it, with the brother in law and the knifing. Like mm-hmm. it's something in the acting and just the the, the the sound effects and everything the way they do it. Now we do get that final shot of him, you know, but it, it, it's bloody, but it's not that bad. But I guess so, from your perspective, Jackson, as a horror fan coming to this movie for the first time, did you feel like it was bloody enough?
0: Yeah, and I didn't go in expecting a lot of blood. Um, I mean, maybe my expectation should have been set, you know, for high blood after seeing that gory scene at the beginning. But um, I like the way that and I, I don't know if I should call this violence in this movie tasteful. I don't know if you can ever call <laughs> serial killings tasteful, <laughs> but it is. It feels kind of classy. You know, this feels like a film, you know, rather than a movie. This is the stepfather. It's like, wow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I, it's more Hitchcockian. Yes, right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think instead of the slasher, this is a thriller. That's where I think this comes in. It's about the characters. It's a character study. It's got lots of thrills and suspense. Uh, and yeah, it's not about the kills, though. I will say I actually. Um, oh, man. What was the uh, bond bonder Bonderant? Is that the like name? He Bondurant. Yeah. 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 He, I thought the way he finally went, not maybe I'm sure he was dead already, but the scene with the car. Uh, that's pretty, that's pretty extreme. That's, that's probably the most extreme kill we get. Um, but yeah, the, the gore isn't that high. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting something like psycho and that's kind of what I got where it's just more thrilling and suspenseful than gory and brutal. Yeah,
1: I, I absolutely, um, agree. And so, yeah, I, I didn't need any more, but I'm not a gore hound, you know, really anyway, I love it when it, pops up when it's done, like maybe even tongue in cheek, like evil dead Two. but it's, I, I don't need it. And so I think it's, it's appropriate here, but that's, yeah, I didn't know Joel, that Joseph Rubin is not a horror fan that, you know, it doesn't surprise me because I've, you know, I've met a lot of um, directors who do them for the gig or, or, or whatever. I mean, there's the old saying in, in Hollywood, um, You never turn down a gig unless you've already got retirement money in the bank.
2: (laughs) Well, it's funny because he specifically said that he loves making them like he loves to scare people. And Mm. thing, and I want to get to at some point. I don't know if you guys looked up the other movie he's made. He's made a couple of fan, in my opinion, fantastic thrillers. One, yes. You could argue, I mean, I would argue, and I know there'd be a lot of people that would be like, really? Come on, Robertson. But I would argue is one of the best of the 90s. I mean, it's barely in the 90s, but it's there. Um, And... He specifically said though he couldn't finish Halloween. He had to leave the theater not because he didn't like it. He loved it, but he's like it was too scary for him. And he said an wow. Alien. He I think it was Alien. He said he had to watch. He had to leave the theater and look through the door so that half the screen was. Cu- it's like a kid. It's like a. It's like a little. Wow. Can't like look. Yeah. Like he said. He's literally like he just. He said I've never understood how people like intentionally go into a theater with the hope of being like upset, scared, whatever He said, I just don't enjoy that feeling. And he said, I love to give it to people. He said, cause you go, cause I've always thought that, you know, to make horror movies, you have to be a, like a little bit of a sadist, right? You gotta enjoy, you know, messing with people. So, um, so obviously he's more of a sadist than a masochist. I guess that's the takeaway.
1: Well, right. he's like Wes. He's like Wes Craven, you know, Wes Craven said the same that Wes Craven was not necessarily a horror movie fan. He liked art oh, house yeah. films. But he also said the same thing. He loved making them. But Jackson, jump in there, buddy.
0: I was just going to say, we talked about this uh on our last episode for Scream 4. Emma Roberts doesn't like horror movies either, and she gives a really good performance in Scream 4, so maybe there's something there. Yeah. Um, but also, we talked about the inverse of that with Quentin Tarantino, where he doesn't often make horror movies, but he's one of the biggest horror movie fans he could ever talk to. He did two hours on that history of horror thing. So there's something to be said about people who either don't like horror movies and do them often, or, uh, or do like horror movies and don't do them. For some reason, I guess it's either pent up inside of them or something. Uh, there's, some, there's a little bit of magic there. Yeah, he made that, uh,
1: Tarantino made that, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, Eli Ross, History of Horror, um, the podcast, he has an unedited podcast where you can listen to unedited interviews. And his interview with Quentin Tarantino is like, what, Jackson, like three hours long, two and a half yeah. hours long, something like that. And Tarantino made the statement, I could never make a slasher because I'm too close to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, he's a guy who owns a 35 millimeter print of the mutilator. Yeah. Yeah. But, I
2: think, but that's why his movies work the way they do, because he brings that taste and that viewpoint and that love for that completely seemingly different genre. Although you can make the argument his movies are like barely definable as a genre thing. I mean, there's so many sure. different genres mixed in. But at the end of the day, I think all of them, you can see the horror fan coming through in aspects of them. So I guess that's my this thing is an interesting discussion to be had like when somebody comes to a film and they that is not their personal fan favorite like that's that's not their fandom they're not you know I, i'm a i'm a comedy person but i'm gonna try making a horror movie and, I, and look it sometimes completely goes sideways right i'm sure we can find right. many examples where somebody had no business making the movie but if they really want to make it like somebody being a massive horror fan but making like a romantic comedy and what they might bring to that <laughs> to make it a little bit edgier darker whatever so i i just think there's something to be said for for that difference in the thing that you love you're a fan of And, and like he like you said tarantino said i mean being too close to it is a definite definite factor
1: yeah yeah which is why i have faith in jackson because jackson you you know even though for years creature from the black lagoon lagoon was your favorite movie Also, like right there was like you had a documentary and you had Scott Pilgrim versus the world, you know, and you had Empire Strikes Back and like those were your top movies, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and horror is the thing that I talk about the most because of the podcast. Uh, and that's all that I did in October was watch horror movies. But I do like to watch other movies as well, other genres. This November, I've been trying to watch as many action movies as possible. Because believe it or not, I'd never seen the RoboCop sequels, just to give you an idea. And I watched those this month. And they were fine, but anyways, uh, yeah, I do have rather, <laughs> rather uh, eclectic taste. I, I don't like to. I don't. That sounds really pretentious. I have eclectic taste. Well, no, very, no, very no, 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 no. We
1: we all do here. And, and by what? the way, Ro- RoboCop three is a piece of crap. But go ahead.
0: Jet pack. Yeah, the jetpack. I mean, come on. That was something. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's something. But uh, yeah, I, and I do have I do have like a, a very broad uh, taste. I mean, because the first movie I remember watching with you, Dad, isn't a horror movie. It's actually uh, First Blood Part 2, Rambo. Uh, <laughs> and the only reason I remember watching it is because right after watching it, it was snowing that day. I went outside and started jumping off my porch, doing, like, flips off the porch, acting <laughs> like I was Rambo, jumping away from a grenade. But, yeah, I, I, I have seen a lot of it, and I'm I'm hoping that if I ever get the chance to make, like, a big-budget horror movie i can do what so many greats have done like uh john carpenter he incorporated all the elements of other things that he loves he loved westerns so he made you know he started with the salt and precinct 13 uh and he halloween has a bunch of different genres in it well
1: well, you could argue vampires is part western movie i mean yeah he's got a lot of those movies absolutely but uh, yeah i mean you just you have to have an eclectic taste even to do it well i mean john carpenter loves horror movies um, it's just not all he loves. You know, he loves sci-fi. He loves Westerns. And Joel, you're right. I mean, he, he has said Westerns were his favorite, you know, genre. It's just nobody was making them, you sure. know, when he when he finally broke in. And so he couldn't get it done. So he makes a movie I know you love, Assault on Precinct 13, which is essentially a Western. Yeah, um, yeah, it's Rio yes. Bravo. <laughs> it, it is Rio Bravo. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, and Jackson, you've got that background, which I'm just I'm I'm proud of. Uh, by the way, uh, Jackson, you've heard this story before. The one time I met Sylvester Stallone, um, you know, I ran away from home when I was 15. I got out to LA when I was 16. Um, an actor who um, some people will know, but will remain nameless because I don't want to get sued, helped me get a uh, fake ID, and. So we started going clubbing together. I, I still have, even though I had a really good fake ID, because I went to this apartment in West Hollywood to get this, paid a couple hundred dollars for it. And this guy's setup was better than the DMV. Um, <laughs> he had a two-bedroom apartment, a second bedroom just is like the DMV. It was incredible. Um, he had the same printers, everything. And so he gives me this. He gives me this fake ID. We go to the China Club. Okay, I have this perfect fake ID, but quite frankly. I would have carded me for a lottery ticket. I was so baby faced. Um, But for some reason it didn't matter. They let me in. Didn't hurt that I was with an actor on a sitcom at the time. We go in. I go to the restroom, as you do many times in a club. And so I'm in the restroom. And I look up and there's Sylvester Stallone looking in the mirror. Now, this is like right before Tango and Cash Sylvester Stallone. Uh So he has the three-piece suit the fake glasses and the feathered hair. And he is fixing his hair for like 20 minutes. He's just playing with his hair. This guy walks out of a stall who is clearly either. He had bad sinus problems or he was coked out of his mind. And he walks out of the stall and he looks at Stallone. He looks at me. He looks back at Stallone. He gets a smile on his face. And I was like, Oh, this is going to go badly. And, so the only thing the guy says, he looks at Stallone, goes, hey, in a really sarcastic tone, nice hair. And Stallone goes without any hint of sarcasm, goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Only time I met Stallone. Anyway, back to the stepfather. Um, the scene where Terry O'Quinn interrupts and, and you corrected me, Joel, when you're right, I For some reason, I don't know if it was my spell check or whatever. It's Jill Schoen. Oh, Jill. sorry. I, was, I
2: wasn't trying to correct you. That's just no, how I know. No. But
1: you, you should have because you're right. It's Jill Scholen. I don't know why it, you know, uh, pages did that to me on my Mac. He, She's kissing the guy who drove her home on the, you know, Vesper or whatever, yeah. you know, and, you know, he accuses, you know, him of raping her where he's just kissing her. Mm-hmm. And his wife yells at him that he's thrown away all the progress that they've made. He makes this kind of googly-eyed thing, and it's obviously meant to show Jerry out. I'm done. Mm -hmm. That's the only part of his performance I didn't like. And and here was the thing: I I I I did it too, Joel. I looked up the director's IMDb, and I saw that he had also helmed "Sleeping with the Enemy." Yep, that was the the movie I was referring to. I think I think that's a great movie. It is a great movie. I agree with you. Uh, it's a movie where Julia Roberts is fleeing her abusive husband played by Patrick Bergen, who I haven't seen in 20 years, but, <laughs> um, spoiler alert when he confronts his wife, he has this speech oh, and yeah. kind of the crescendo is I won't let you live without me. Mm-hmm. And he does a weird, eye thing as well.
2: <laughs> I think he's directing them to do it.
1: <laughs> I, I think he is. <laughs> it's a, it's a choice, but yeah. I just, I don't, I, I don't know. I thought, I don't, okay, the film geek in me, I just thought maybe he could have hardened his face or something. I didn't think he had to like, you know, Google his eyes like, you know, large Marge in, uh, are, you
2: know. Let me just clarify. Are you referring to when they're still on the porch or when he walks yes. away from the porch? Okay, see, actually, again, so walk, listen, uh, full disclosure, listening to the commentary with the director actually walking through the scene, it does help give you perspective on this. That's he true. does get that look on his face, like, you know, like, what are you, you know, what's, what are you talking about? But that's not the moment. The moment where he's decided that this is the end of act two and we're going into act three where he's now going to prepare to kill his family is the when he walks off the porch and she stays on it and he walks into the yard and he steps into that half shadow, half moon, presumably moonlight or streetlight or whatever's supposed to be on his face. And, and, and in that moment, his face is locked in and he almost stares directly into the camera. He actually does this thing where he comes right up to the – do you remember that? You know what I'm
1: talking? Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I just – I I misread it then. Okay. So that's
2: what – to me – and and I always took it that being the moment where it's really – because then he had looked back over his shoulder, and Susan goes back in the house angry, and and he realizes he's alone. And that's the moment. I know the moment you're talking about, and and now I really know the moment in sleeping with him that you're talking about because I always thought that yeah. was – that part I've always found – it's a, it's a terrifying notion in the moment in the scene, but yeah, the way his eyes going really wide, you're like, okay, you know, calm down, calm down. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I get your point. But I think that the, to me and and ultimately again, you know, cheating a little bit because of what the director said, I think the moment where you're supposed to take it as okay, now it's done is when he's walked away from the house and he stands in that half shadow face thing. And he's like looking at the camera almost.
1: Okay. I, I I misread it then. Jackson did what about you? What did you think of that scene?
0: Uh, I didn't mind it so much. Looking back, yeah, I, I do remember the shot you're talking about. Um, where it's kind of like a close-up on his face when he's on the porch. yeah. Uh, and he does have kind of like a lackadaisical, kind of like unfocused look on his face. But it seems like he does that quite a few times. Whenever he's like trying to keep his like happy outer shell, but like the evil from within him is trying to like uh, grapple its way out, he kind of has this weird like conflicted face where it kind of looks like he's constipated. You can't really tell what's going on. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, that, I, I guess it would be silly in a lesser movie, but since you know who he is and what he's struggling with inside, I wasn't really bothered by any funny faces he can make because those funny faces quickly become unfunny when you realize that that is a mass murderer. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely, um, I know what you're talking about. That didn't bother me. Um, that he is in another movie with a, with a lesser script. I think some could consider his character would be over, overacting and like going crazy. Like, especially in that scene where he goes crazy in the basement but it it just works for some reason with the writing and the performance it so works i've seen movies where the characters have done less and i'm like oh chill out dude you know like you're you're taking it to a level but the movie is at that insane level where you're like okay well anything can happen i mean and it does he takes off his toupee puts on contact lenses and with fake glasses i mean it it just anything goes in this movie um so yeah it didn't bother me too much
2: now, Matt, you said the thing about the eyes, but it's interesting. I was just reminded one of the things that Ruben, the director, did say that he he actually says that if he had it to do over again, he would have directed O'Quinn to do this differently is a scene where they're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, which is what makes yeah. a sta- Thanksgiving movie. And he has got that look on his face where his eyes are kind of darting back and forth as he's eating. And it's always like you could see him having a conversation in his head with what he's gonna do with these two. And it's he kind of looks back and forth and back and forth. I, ah. I that's so, you know what? I think about it, that wasn't Thanksgiving dinner. That was the, the final dinner. So Thanksgiving dinner everything's hunky dory. Never mind. Strike that. The final I remember
1: what you're talking about the after yeah, they had so, the falling out and they're yes. eating dinner. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah, this is where he's already making his plan and we're into the third act. The, yes, that moment where his eyes are darting around Ruben actually said, he goes, honestly, I think I would have told him to, to do that less because and his reasoning was and It's actually sound is that he feels like it, the way everything has been played with these characters and and everything that they would notice it. They would notice there's something wrong. Like, why is he looking? Yeah, why is he looking all over the place? What's because it is kind of extreme. I think he was doing that for the camera's effect, but it is a bit over. Done. I guess I never really it never bothered me as a as a viewer of the movie and I've seen it multiple times but I get what he's saying is that it does seem as if like these people are really sitting at dinner maybe they're not really talking but somebody's gonna look up at you every once in a while and if your eyes are darting back and forth to each person like you're trying to figure out which target to hone in on there might be like you know hey yeah, yeah. they'd say something to you so
1: yeah, it was, it just occurred to me today because uh, this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen this, and it just occurred to me today because while I was watching it, I was looking up different cast and crew's IMDb page, and so I go to Ruben and say, oh, he he did Sleeping with the Enemy, and that's, I was literally looking at that, why that porch scene was going on, like, and then later on, yeah, yeah, you're right, with that dinner set, I'm like, man, he's got a thing with eyes. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. there's something weird going on there with eyes, but yeah, um, so we can go back and hit any scene you guys want to talk about, Jackson or Joel, but I do want to talk about the end with Terry O'Quinn chasing Jill Sholin through the house, you know, from the bathroom to the attic and so forth. IMDb trivia. And like I said, I didn't watch the commentary. Maybe they mentioned this. Uh, Jill Sholin did her own stunts, by the way, and claims the IMDb trivia anyway, claims she had nightmares for weeks after that scene. Hmm. Uh, Joel, the ending, what'd you think?
2: I like it for a lot of various reasons um, and, and none of them are creepy. Let's just get that out of the way now. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the you know, the shower scene specifically, I just want to address this because I think one thing that I never noticed before was that the shower scene at the beginning with Terry O'Quinn, and it's full naked. I mean, it's like they're they, they don't, they're not hiding back you know, on right. anything. So, and the angle and everything on that shower is almost exactly the same as when Stephanie is in the shower, Like she goes to get in the shower right. and I, had they left it there. It would have felt like slightly less, you know, gratuitous. And I mean, I'm not approved by any stretch of imagination, but it just, and there was a, like, you know, I was saying like, okay, I get it. to the eighties. All right, fine. Yeah. But all right, I guess, cause she's, she's positioned as like, she's a teenager and you know, it's like, oh okay. Um, but when she comes out of the, the bathroom and he's already up there it's like after he's attacked the mom. What I think is interesting, and back to people who want to call this predictable <clears throat> uh <laughs> the <laughs> expectation would have been he would have attacked her in the shower, which is also, by the way, I would assume a nod to Psycho. Right. And, and you know, he would have attacked her. But the fact that she's kind of comes up, she's drying her hair and and it almost startles him, it was a I thought a really great twist on that. And also I never noticed before that he's got this huge, you know, knife in his hand and he goes, Hey, pumpkin. And I'm thinking, and I realize I'm probably way. Oh
1: waiting. yeah. I didn't even think about that.
2: Like a jack-o'-lantern and like he's about to carve her up. And, and, you know, so then she gets into the, the, the bathroom and they actually talked about, they, once when they're writing the script, they didn't know what to do after that point. It's like, okay, she's in the shower, in the bathroom. If he gets in there, she's dead. <laughs> I mean, she's just dead. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was, I think the producer, uh, had made the comment that uh, Jay Benson, because this, this is also in the uh, the Stepfather Chronicles, is about a twenty five minute uh, doc, behind the scenes documentary that's on the disc, and he talked about that in I think when he was growing up, wherever it was, New Jersey or Philadelphia or somewhere or Pennsylvania, I mean somewhere like that. He said in his home, his family home, they had a a a sort of top they covered the entire back of the door bathroom mirror, just like a full length bathroom mirror, but it was on the door. And he said if we had something like that, and he was beaten on that hard enough, it would. Break eventually, and then she could just pick up a shard and she could stab him. But the thing that's always gotten to me—I don't know if you guys picked up on this—when she stabs him, does it not look like she stabbed him in the gut? Yes, it's in the shoulder, and it makes it makes more sense for it to be in the shoulder. Stabs him in the gut. I'm not saying he couldn't have fought back, but not probably to the degree that he does. But. It looks like maybe that was the intention initially was she was going to stab him in the gut. And then they uh, well, let's not do that. And they cut you know, to that angle of him turning around. And, you know, you see it in his shoulder. But I, so it did look that way to you as well.
1: Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. And like I said, this is a third or fourth time I've seen it. And it's the first time I noticed it. But yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, we get this, it's a very suspenseful scene, Uh, in case anybody wants to say, oh, convenient, there's an attic hatch in their closet, uh, according to Michael Gingold, his childhood bedroom had that, his closet had an attic hatch, which, by the way, as a child, that would have terrified me, (laughs) there is no way I would have been like, hey, I want the bedroom with the attic hatch in my closet, no, thank you, hard pass, but-
1: yeah, we had that Jackson and I, Jackson, you won't remember this because we were too young, but the first house I bought was a townhouse when I was a first year uh, lawyer. And yes, it had one in our bedroom closet.
2: Yeah. So I'd never seen a house with that before, uh, but I, I just, I think the cinematography of the scene, the way it's paced when he's approaching the bathroom and we get that shadow, that long shadow down the hall with him. I mean, there's so much to like about that entire sequence and Honestly, the, the one thing, I don't know if either of you are going to address it, so I apologize if I'm I'm stealing your thunder, but the brother-in-law, who we have not really talked much about, who is sort oh, of yeah. Sam Loomis, you know, the Dr. Loomis of this movie in the sits. Like, you know, we keep go cutting back and forth and it's him tracking this guy and trying to figure out, you know, this is the guy that killed my my sister and her whole family and the buildup. And back to this not being predictable, the buildup is he's going to pull a Dr. Loomis and save the day. He comes with a gun. He's going to. And no, he doesn't. He gets
1: offed and the way that whole thing plays out,
2: even. you going to say something?
1: Well, I'm going to say he's an idiot. Oh, yeah.
2: He,
1: um, <laughs> he doesn't pull
2: the gun out. He, he pulls his hand out without the gun and has like this like moment. Like, I think it's the same guy.
1: <laughs> Would you, if you're illegally trespassing, you're breaking and entering. Mm-hmm. um, And breaking and entering on what you're convinced is the home of a mass murderer, if not a serial killer. Mm-hmm. would you not have the gun out?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> would have had the gun out. Yeah. No, I, I, I didn't say he was a smart man. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> just, no, 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 no. I just think the predictable thing to do would have been to have him come in and at least kind of at least help save the day. In the end, he is. It, it's like, if you think about it, he gets nothing. I mean, his character, it's this really tragic. I mean, his whole family essentially was killed and then he doesn't get anything. He doesn't get any kind of revenge, nothing.
1: He he's just... a scatman Crothers from Shining. Yes, uh. He is
2: the Scat Man. We think he's Dr. <laughs> Loomis, but no kids, he is Scatman.
1: <laughs> yes, he is. Jackson,
0: your thoughts on the ending, buddy. There are a lot of parts about the ending that I love. Um, I do love the scene where it looks like uh it looks like the stepfather is going to attack Stephanie in the shower. I do like that idea. Um, and I I do like that they kind of run into each other, and they're both equally surprised, and she doesn't really know what's going on until she sees a bloody knife. Um, and I didn't pick up on that pumpkin thing, that's actually really clever, I I do like that. Because I don't recall him ever calling her pumpkin in the rest of the movie. So, uh, he had called her a bunch of things, but I don't think he called her pumpkin. So that was a kind of a special, I feel like that that had to have some meaning. Um, Joel, you kind of hit on two of the things that I do have a problem with in the script of this movie. Uh, the first is uh, the shower scene. The character is supposed to be 16. Mm-hmm. She's taking typing class and art class. Kind of weird that they had a fully nude scene. And I know she was 23. The actor was 23. Yeah. But still, that feels a, feels a little odd. Um, but, you well, know, whatever. To, to be fair, in 1988,
1: when I saw this, when I was 16 and a heathen i thought it was great now at 48 sure. it's supposed to be 16 i agree with you it's like uh, okay that's kind of creepy and yeah.
2: i think and i think also though to back up what you're saying jackson like the other problem is there's no sexual subtext between him and her like none right. I, in fact ruben even said he, he they, apparently that was something that uh michael gingold mentioned that i think he'd read an interview that maybe donald westlake or somebody had mentioned that they had contemplated in putting that in, like having more where he was actually more attracted to Stephanie. That was part of what was driving his rage. And, but, but Ruben's like, no, I don't want that at all because that's not how this guy operates. It's the same reason why he would never kill that little dog because there's certain. Like sacrosanct things that he just, there's certain pieces to this puzzle of his mind that have to be a certain way. And the idea of being attracted to his daughter, I mean, it's a stepdaughter but still, daughter is he can't do it. It's like his brain won't even go there. So if you really pay attention, there is no creepy thing with her. And so she's always very portrayed, very innocently. Like even her relationship with her boyfriend is very innocent by 80 standards, you know? Sure. Uh, and, and so for that, for her to be that way, I, I think her getting into the shower the way she does. And the angle is such a great callback to that opening moment with him. And it is that idea of you being your most vulnerable. Right, and it's 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 you see her,
1: but it's not like lingering. But it's like then we got to cut to inside the shower, <laughs> over you know, right. a couple shots like, uh, oh, for God. for no reason other than like a Corman esque like we yeah, have got to have. That's
2: what it yeah. feels like, and, and I don't know if that was you know like a producer said, hey, you know we need more of it this movie, you know get butts and seats, and that may have happened, I don't know. Uh, but I I feel it feels a little kind of gratuitous. It's like yeah, you know you know, because you didn't we didn't get a close up uh, of uh you know uh, of Terry. Quinn's John Locke you know when he was in the, <laughs> right, right. Was in the shower to get that uh, so I don't know just saying yeah. well
1: and there was and Jackson I'm sorry to interrupt you I, I want you to finish but the one thing I was thinking of yeah he's kind of presented as like this he's a narcissistic psychopath and yet at the same time you know what is he shown watching on TV and loving and talking about like his favorite show he's good it's Mr. Ed wasn't Mr. Ed? it yeah yes so yeah. it's like, I'm a narcissistic psychopath who wants to live in the 1950s.
2: Yes, he's very, in. Inno- there's a weird innocence to him. It's like, it's like really yeah. bizarre. It's like violent innocence. Like he's just, yeah. Yeah, Jackson, sorry, I, I, I derailed your point. I apologize. But I just, I really wanted to drive home that because I totally agree with what you're
1: saying.
0: No, no, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, that that I do. There is a weird innocence to him. He just wants that classic family value. That's all. That's all he wants. He wants to be a part of that. And whenever it falls apart, you touched on this earlier. He can never have that perfect. There is no perfect family. He wants the perfect TV family, and he can never get it. And that frustrates him to no end. It frustrates him enough to lead him to be a murderer. But, yeah, so the the nudity, the two other angles, yeah, I agree. Maybe if they just left it at that one as a callback,, uh, that's fine. But we get an above angle shot and a front angle shot, which cuts back to it twice whenever uh, jim, the the former brother in-law's is showing up at the house. And my second uh, problem with it is not that uh, Jim dies. I love that fact that they're building up, him up as a Dr. Loomis type. I actually written, had written that in my notes. He really is like that. He's like Loomis tracking Michael. And um, I like that he is killed off by the stepfather. I do like that, that aspect to it. I just wish there had been a little bit more between those two, a little bit more of a discussion. He knows what he looks like. He had met him in real life. I'm not really sure why a guy with blood on him, he's like, hmm, let's just, let's just stare at this guy and stand. And he knows his name, too. You know, he says Jim. He calls, yeah. he calls him Jim. And for some reason, he hasn't pulled the gun out yet. I, I really d- thought that maybe there shouldn't have been there should have been more of a moment of recognition uh, before the killing to make it more emotional. perhaps. I do like the way that he's just dispatched and then he's just a dead body for the rest of it, used yeah. to scare the other members of the family. But um I, I do wish that there was a little bit more done with that. Those are my two real main flaws with it. But the ending there are parts i like about the ending you talked about the attic crawl space through the uh through the closet i really like that how the climbing up on the shelf and climbing into the into the attic i do i like that um i like uh how he's stabbed with the mirror shard that's cool i didn't notice the being stabbed in the gut thing uh i would be an awful script advisor i would not be good at uh, noticing continuity errors uh, so maybe that's why I need other people to help make movies with. But, um, yeah, so that didn't bother me so much. Uh, I do like the way that justice is served. Maybe we want to get it. And I haven't seen the sequels yet, but knowing that, at least in The Stepfather 2, we have that returning character, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like maybe maybe he should have stayed dead to really give that impact to it. Yeah. He,
1: yeah, because he takes, what, two bullet holes, I think? and. Yep. Um, and then he gets a knife that looks, if it didn't hit his hard, it was awfully close.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I'm not sure how you survive that, but you know, it, it became a hit on video. So that's what happens. But, um, yeah, I, I do really like the ending scene. Um, I, I thought that was really strong. I think that that's one of the things that makes this a great horror film is that it begins strong and it ends strong. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I really like this, along with uh, Terry O'Quinn's performance. So any other scenes we want to talk about before we briefly discuss the cast?
2: I, I did real quick want to insert the, the knife in the heart thing. Apparently, 30 seconds before they said action. And that moment where he's got that look on his face and the way he looks at her and he says, I love you. Just, he yeah. I love you. It's just it's there's a tragedy to the whole thing. 30 seconds before Apparently, Terry Quinn had told somebody a joke and they were laughing and he was just like an action. And he went right into it, right into that moment. And wow. that like that dude is a baller, man. He, <laughs> he is just oh man. Tremendous, tremendous.
0: That is talent. So, Jackson, any other scenes you want to talk about before we move on to the cast? I don't have a specific scene, uh, but I just want to say really quick. I was really surprised at how uh, this thing is is real brief. It it gets right to the point. An hour and 28 minutes, and every scene means something. It all builds up to the end. I really appreciated that. Uh, I know a lot of uh, direct-to-video slashers are short for runtime uh, purely because of budget. It didn't feel like that in this movie. It was very intentional.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is quick, and so... Let's go ahead and transition. We don't need to talk about this long because we've already gushed about uh, Mr. Terry O'Quinn, who I would guess many of our listeners would know from Lost, uh, where he was incredible. Best but I would all... on the show, yeah. him and Hurley. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I would also recommend people check out Pin from 1989.
2: Oh, so great. I love that movie.
1: I do too. He's only really in the first act, but he steals every moment he's in. Um but this is something you know say what you want about you can say whatever you want about Mr. O'Quinn Joel but his last feature film credit was Old School in 2003. Wow, really? Cuz I guess he's just he, hey look,
2: when you're making the kind of money I'm sure he's making doing TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's what he's been doing. He's been yep. doing TV ever since but he has not done a feature film since an uncredited wow. role as Luke Wilson's boss in Old School in 2003. Wow.
2: That's shocking. I really I had no idea. I didn't. I, I feel like I know a lot of his movies and uh, I'm such a huge fan of his. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of, you know, action figure type things. I got a few horror stuff, but I actually have a John Locke where he's like standing over the hatch because that was my oh. And I'm not saying I was biased towards the character because we're both bald. I, I'm not I'm implying that, but I am saying that that was my favorite character. So, um, yeah, I just uh, yeah yeah two, 2003. Really?
1: Last feature film I could find when scrolling through IMDb was Old School.
2: Man, that's crazy.
1: I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Jackson, anything else you want to say about Mr. Terry O'Quinn?
0: I think we've got, I mean, we, we can sing his praises all day. He's what makes this movie. I think every review, even the ones that called this movie predictable, have to bow down to Terry O'Quinn. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Lost. Don't crucify me. I haven't seen it. I mean, of course I've seen the odd episode here and there. But, um, well, which yeah, was four when it debuted, so right, yeah. right, <laughs> in um, <your> defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but I, I have seen a lot of the movies that he's in. Pin is one that I've been interested in for a long time, uh, purely because of the poster and the IMDb summary. I don't know anything about it past that, but um, yeah, I, I'm surprised to know that he hasn't done anything as of late other than tv it it seems like he'd be one of those guys that would just work and work and work all the way up to retirement i mean it just seems like he would love the craft but hey man i mean i don't blame him <laughs> feature films are, are a hassle um so i can definitely see why he he he's done that um but yeah terry o'quinn best perform i think everyone can agree best performance in the whole movie and he's what makes this. if this had been given to anybody else i i really can't see it being as good
1: yeah agreed and so We also have Jill Sholin, who has has basically retired from acting um, as Stephanie. I feel like from all the performances I've seen, she just seems like a really nice person. That's...
2: Every interview I've ever seen, everything about her, she seems like a wonderful person.
1: Yeah, and it, it, that's probably why, like everyone who's ever done a movie with her, has fallen in love with her and asked her to marry him. Her so because like you know Brad Pitt and Cutting Class to oh,
2: Cutting Class, I love that
1: movie. <laughs> I do too. It's ridiculous, but I love it. <laughs> so ridiculous, um, I love it. This is a bit of a nitpick. If you're casting a troubled teen who gets into fistfights at school, do you really cast? Think of Jill Sholin first.
2: No, and that's what's funny because I I gotta believe there's other quote unquote rebellious teen stuff. You could have had her doing like shoplifting or you know I don't, something because yeah, I do not vi- picture her like even in that scene the way it plays out because apparently they didn't use stunt doubles. It was just the the two uh, women fighting, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, it's yeah, it's on. although the handprint she does on the back of that guy, the teacher's shirt, the paint, she takes the yep. paint, paint it on the way out the door. And apparently that was meant to be a, a bit of a, a
1: throwback to the uh, opening
2: when we've got that red bloody handprint
1: on the wall. Ah, OK. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. Uh, Jackson, what did you think
0: of Miss Jill Sholin? Yeah, I thought she was great. Uh, I mean, she Again, she kind of pales. Everyone pales in comparison to, to Jerry's performance. But, um, you know, she did a good job. I find it kind of odd that she was 23 playing a 16 year old. It must have been weird for her to be in a school set and, like, acting like she's a high schooler when she's long since graduated, if she even graduated high school. Because I know if she was a child star, they usually have some kind of weird, demented, like, tutor situation. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, she gave a really good performance. She is believable for her age. Uh, whereas I feel like in a lot of slashers, you're like these people are 38. There there is no way they're 17. Yeah. Uh, I th- I think she did a good job. Um, I do like the fact that she can even physically compete with with Jerry Blake. And that's another thing. I just want to get back to 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 uh, Jerry really quick. He's not that physically. You wouldn't picture him as a physically menacing character. Uh, you you see him you, you see him shirtless. He's not super muscular. Uh, he's not the the thing that makes him dangerous is that erratic behavior we talked about. Anyways, I'm getting off topic again. Um. Uh. Yeah. Stephanie's a good character. I liked one of my favorite parts of the, about the movie is actually all the investigating that she does. Uh, I liked how she writes into the paper to get a picture of the serial killer or when she's sneaking into the house where Bondurant was murdered in, in efforts to find out you know, what happened to him. It, it kind of puts a little bit of mystery back in this movie where we know who the killer is the entire time because we're on the edge of our seat seeing when Stephanie is going to figure it out. That's one of the most fun parts of the movie for me. So just the fact that she gets to do that, I think it makes it a really good role for her.
1: Okay. Well, I just, I, I thought it was strange casting. I don't have a problem with her. I'm not saying that uh, the fight scene I thought was a little weird. Um, I'm with Joel. I, th- I think I would have preferred to have her do like, you know, uh, maybe she's crying and screaming and throwing things or, you know, just causing disturbances. She doesn't, you know, strike me as the kind of girl would throw down with somebody in art class while they're finger painting. But anyway, Um <laughs> We do have Shelly Hack as the mom. I knew her because I was born in 72. I knew her from commercials all over the place. Um, she was also in a late, if not the last season of Charlie's Angels. Um, and I don't think I remember watching this as this is before the Internet and IMDb. Um, I remember watching this movie the first time Go, Where do I know her from? I know her. I know I've seen her. I think She's fine you know, as the mom, I don't think she's stand out, but Joe, what do you think?
2: I actually think her performance is probably one of the more underrated ones in the really? movie. Yes. And here's why she has to pull off seeming like a, a person who does not who's living with this man and, and, and is at least somewhat privy, you know, to him behind the scenes. Cause I mean, even though Jerry is always acting, right. He's always in his persona, there are times he lets down his guard. Obviously, with Stephanie in the basement, but mm-hmm. she's, she's got to p- portray being so in love with him that she doesn't seem desperate. She doesn't seem dumb. She doesn't seem like she's a sucker. She just seems like she just cares about this guy so much she doesn't want to see what is right in front of her face. Because even at the end okay. there, when they're on the the porch and he's he's you know blowing up about the guy and the, this and that and the other thing and. I think she's she's sensing that there's something off, but I, but she loves him so much. She, it's like, it's like this willful blindness. Like she just doesn't want to see it. The thing is, is that I didn't, I've only ever known her from this movie. I finally saw, I I feel like I had seen virtually every, at least old school Martin Scorsese movie, but one of the few I hadn't seen was King of comedy. With uh, yeah. And she's in that. And apparently that's why she got this job because she did such a good job in that they wanted her immediately for this. And that is a very Jackson, I don't know if you've seen King of Comedy with Robert De Niro. It is fancy. Especially, I'm assuming you've seen the most recent Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, right?
0: Yes. And and from watching just trailer breakdowns of that with side by sides from King of Comedy, I could definitely tell it was very inspired. Watch. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely see King of Comedy because you'll be like, oh, wow, that is incredible. But she was also in the uh, 86 version of Troll. Which I haven't seen in forever. Yeah. yeah, I remember liking it quite a bit. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. So oh, I, I
1: don't remember her in that. Yeah. Okay.
2: I don't. I don't remember her in it either. But apparently, according to this, she's you know she had a named character. It wasn't like she was you know you know lady walking in the background. I mean, she, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, but yeah. So uh, yeah, it, I think her performance is very understated, and it needed to be because her character could have just been seen as like this annoying, like, Oh, come on, open your eyes. Sort of like how you feel about the brother-in-law for not pulling the gun out. It's like, come on, man. I mean, you're right. looking for a killer. Yeah. But he, we only get him in little bits and he's, and he's so almost manic in his desperation to, to find and, and stop Jerry that, it kinda of makes sense, I guess, but for her, she's gotta be there. She's gotta be this, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, when you have a, a comedy team and, and one person's gotta be the the straight person and one's got you know, the complete hand that's all over the place. The harder is the the ca- you know, the com. Calm- I'm not, by the way, trying to disparage Mr. O'Quinn's performance in any way, shape, or form. I think it's stellar and amazing. I'm just saying I feel like hers is easy to dismiss simply because of its subdued quality.
1: All right. Fair fair enough. I You know, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't think it was bad. It just didn't stand out to me, but I see what you're saying. So Jackson, any thoughts there?
0: Yeah, I, I just want to say really quick, uh, Joel. I was about to say, uh, Shelly Hack. You say king of comedy, I say troll. Uh, she I definitely remember her from <laughs> Troll. Uh, she is actually, if you don't remember, she is Anne Potter. I think wife of Harry Potter in that movie. Well, that's right. Interesting. Harry yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, she's in that uh, great uh, great movie. Kind of more fun than good, I would say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> hey, hey,
2: Jackson. Is there not a part of you that? is secretly wishing and hoping that one day it will be revealed that J.K. Rowling stole the name from that movie.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> I, that would be amazing. And it would be even funnier if it turned out that her favorite in the series was Troll 2, because that would just be fantastic. I mean, listen, I own Troll 2 on DVD, so that just tells you how much I love that movie. Yeah.
2: No, I, I I enjoy them both. So I'm right there. It wasn't,
0: right the only thing I
1: remember from Troll wasn't uh, Julie Louis, uh, Louis yes. Dreyfus in it? Yep.
2: And and uh, Cindy Bono. Yep, both of them.
1: Sonny Bono was in it.
2: Yeah, right, right, Jackson? I'm pretty
0: sure. I'm 90. Yes, he was in it. Yeah. I don't remember to what capacity, but he is a, a named yeah. character, if I recall. Oh, my
1: God. Yeah. yeah. I knew Sonny Bono
0: because he was a congressman
1: when I was working on Capitol oh, Hill.
0: Cool.
1: <laughs> and yeah. very, very nice. Had a very intelligent, beautiful wife, Mary, who took his seat when he died tragically. But Sonny was um, a, a very nice guy, um, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, well, you know I he's a congressman. Remember, well, yeah, there's that. But he was—I remember our press secretary walked. This is like 1995, I think. I was 23. I was working on Capitol Hill, and our press secretary walked in and said, "Rawlings, you won't believe what I just saw." I said, "What?" He said, "Sonny Bono held a press conference." I said, "Okay." Well, you know they typed up his press secretary typed up his notes for him to read. And he was reading directly from his notes. I said, "Okay." He read, turn the page at the end of page one. Oh, brother. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. Oh, anyway, back to uh, the stepfather. So Stephen Shellen, who played uh, Jim, uh, the ex-brother-in-law, horror fans may recognize from American Gothic from 1988 with Rod Steiger and Yvonne DiCarlo. But he was also, Joel, did you know this? He was in an episode of Tales from the Crypt.
2: Oh, which one? I didn't catch that.
1: 1989, season one. Okay. I know episode five. Love come hack to me. Oh
2: yes! I remember that episode. Yes.
1: Directed by Tom Holland, starring Amanda Plummer. Yep, he's in that.
2: Yes. Yeah, so it's on their honeymoon, right? Yep. 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 I remember that one.
1: That's great. So horror fans can uh can check that out. So Joe, what did you think of Mr. Stephen Shellon. we know what we think of his character. He's an idiot, but yeah,
2: um... yeah. I'm sure Mr. Mr. Schellen is a wonderful person. Um, I, I think the performance was good. Like, I think it did what it needed to do. I mean, it it gives us I think if you don't have this B story that we can go to from time to time, it was just with Jerry and Stephanie the whole way through. I feel like a lot of the tension would have been lost. I feel like because of having that. Little element of this person pushing towards finding him. And I actually thought the way they set certain things up was pretty clever. Like the magazine when he goes into the house, which, by the way, was a uh, Gingold pointed out a great point, which is that was very reminiscent of Halloween where Dr. Ah. Goes back yeah. to the quote yep. unquote haunted house, right? The crime scene, and here we have uh, we have Ogilvy doing the same thing, and he finds that magazine with the pages torn out, and then he goes to the library. And well, yes, you can make the argument. Well, that's convenient that they had like every issue of Travel and Leisure at this town <laughs> library. But yes. I, will say, I will say, pre-internet, right? That it was a clever way of getting past exposition of okay, how else is he going to find out where this guy went? He's got a, you know, um, so I thought that was a cool touch. I love that, you know, his character, you know, interacts enough with cops and stuff, but he's, you know, it's just him. It's, it's, it's obsessive and he's desperate and you understand, you understand why he's doing what he's doing and he feels the way he feels.
0: Yeah. All right. I'm with it. Jackson, what do you think? I didn't think his performance was. You know, mind blowing, but I did like mm-hmm. his interactions with people. I did like that B story. I love his interactions with the reporter uh, near the beginning. Uh, I, I really like the scene when he's w- just walked out of the newspaper uh, place and he kind of attacks him almost. He, you know, startles them. And then they just kind of s- stand there and smoke cigarettes together. I thought that was kind of a funny scene. It's like, w- what is going on here? But uh, my favorite scene from him is when he's at the police station and he interacts with the uh, with the receptionist. I liked that part that was kind of humanizing for him. Um, but yeah, he, he, he makes some stupid decisions in the third act. Uh, didn't really understand that. He, I, I feel like there could have been more done with this character, like I said earlier. But I mean, he did a good job with the material he was given. Yeah. All right. So
1: anyone else in the cast we want to talk about before we quickly talk about the technical aspects and wrap this up with our ratings and review? Anything else you guys want to talk about? Jackson, Jackson, <laughs> anything you want to throw in there, buddy? Or are we good to move
0: on to the technical aspects real quick? I've got nothing. You know, I've got this, this huge right. wealth of notes in front of me, and I can't decipher any of them, so, so I guess we am moving uh, on.
1: That's <laughs> fine. Um, I do remember when I first watched this movie, the first time I watched it, I thought, okay, that guy playing the um, stepfather, um, I remember him from Silver Bullet, he's he's great. Um, I remember really loving the movie. I remember thinking at the time, I changed my opinion a little bit this weekend rewatching it. At the time, I thought it was shot a little bit like a TV movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still aspects of that, but rewatching it, I thought the cinematography and editing was was fine. Now the music I thought was terrible, but I think that's a budgetary issue.
2: Do you know uh, who did music? I'm glad you, I actually, cause you guys are music guys, right? Yeah. So I, I felt like I was like, I would be curious to know if you picked up on who did the music for this movie. Did you catch it? I didn't. It's a, a guy named, I, I, just so we're clear, I'm not trying to do this as if I know, cause I had no idea who this was the, until they said it in the commentary, but I know the bands he was involved with. So okay. Patrick Moraz. Was a keyboardist for Yes and the Moody Blues.
1: Oh wow! Yeah.
2: So I actually, and knowing that and listening, I re- I feel like this would be the point where you and I really separate and part ways, uh, Matt. I actually like the soundtrack. I, I love the score. I, I there's certain aspects of it. certain okay the certain part of it I like a lot. Um, but it's got that electronic sound for sure. Uh, but yeah, I didn't know that until I listened to the commentary. But yeah, they said he was the keyboardist for both Yes and the Moody Blues.
1: Well, then he may have been also because I think it was the guy from Yes who did the um, soundtrack to The Burning, which I don't know if you've ever seen, Joel. Oh, but I did. I did. <laughs> know
2: that. I have seen it. I have. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: so I just I mean, like the music Jill Schoen is listening to was so generic kind of, you know. Oh, I Yeah.
2: Like that. I'm talking about the score. Score. That, yeah, that.
1: The, the score, I just thought, it, to me, it struck me as generic. But Jackson, you're a better musician than me. I can barely play bass.
0: You play real stuff. What did you think? Uh, you know, I thought that the opening credits, the music behind the opening credits was kind of cool, not like super iconic, but it, it had a kind of a cool melody to it. Uh, yeah, the music that Stephanie listens to, I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> uh, I'll put it this way. Listen, I love Yes. Uh, I did not know yes was associated with the soundtrack, <laughs> it's just like, well, it's, it's a eventual- any- yes. Yeah. yeah any 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 given yes song i think is way more iconic than the the music cues I, I don't have a problem with it it was never distracting i'll I'll put it that way the best the best thing that a, the score can be is immersive and the worst thing it can be is distracting and i don't think it took away from this i don't think it was immersive per se but uh it didn't it didn't take anything away from the movie so i didn't mind it so much all right fair enough and
1: so yeah, like I said, I thought it was shot and edited well. Joseph Rubin, we mentioned, it, Sleeping with the Enemy. He also did a number of other movies I really like. He did Dreamscape from yes. 1984, yeah. uh, which, I, which I love. And uh, he did a movie called True Believer with James Woods and Robert Downey Jr., and read from that 70s show, which I really like. is a really solid kind of courtroom mystery, you know, kind of thing. And so you now I think he's a talented director. And I thought, technically, I thought it was pretty well done. Joel?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think he also did The Good Son. Remember that's when one where Macaulay Colts? Yes,
1: did- the, the kind of remake of The Bad Seed.
2: Yes. And I, I love that movie too. Like, I, yes. I love those kinds of thrillers. So, uh, yeah, to me, the fact that he did The Good Son and Sleeping with the Enemy. Yeah, uh, and yeah. You know, full disclosure: I never saw True Believer. I know of it. I'm familiar oh, with it. I just haven't seen it. I know it's I a need good to.
1: Movie.
2: And as I as I'm getting older, it's like I'm wanting to watch fewer and fewer new you know, horror movies and such. Like I just want to go back and go through the where all the holes are in the filmography. It's like okay, never saw that. And you catch that. Uh, so yeah, and uh, Money Train, which I feel like I did see. Isn't that with was, was that, was, was, that Woody, was that Woody Harrelson
1: and Wesley Snipes? It was, was uh, follow
2: up to White Men Can't Jump, right? Wasn't that yes. what it was? OK, yes,
1: it was. It's 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 not bad.
2: Yeah, I I have a vague recollection of it. I, don't, I feel like I did see it. But yeah, for Sleeping with the Enemy, the Good Son and obviously the Stuff Father and Dreamscape. I, I was always a big fan of that when I was a kid, too. Um. So, yeah, it uh, I, I think. Yeah, I think he's a a really good, solid director.
1: Hasn't done much in the last 20 years, he's just done a handful of films. But um, Jackson, what did you think of technically the what Joseph Rubin did here?
0: yeah, I thought it was proficient. I, I I thought it was pretty good. The editing, I think, is the best the best part about it. The way that the the end of the second act and into the third act kind of frames uh, the the stepfather setting up his new life with him coming back to his old life. I really liked that aspect to it. The directing, it had its moments of greatness. I really love the last shot of the opening scene where we get we pull out onto that street and we see people going about their business and him walking off whistling. I mm-hmm. do like that shot. The rest of it is, you know, pretty good. There was never a shot where I felt like it was, you know, stupid. I was never like, whoa, whoa what is that shot? Not that I would know, anyways. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I didn't feel like it was ever distracting. I never felt like there was a shot that was unmotivated, except for maybe some of the shots in the shower scene. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but he did a, he did a good job. And I've never, I have never seen any of the movies that you mentioned that he had done before. I haven't seen The Good Son. I've been meaning to see it. Um, never seen Dreamscape, nothing. But uh, judging from this movie, and I don't know how big the budget was, I'd say he did a pretty good job. Yeah,
1: I don't think it was a big budget, and so I, I will give him props for for you know pulling this off. And obviously, he got you know he got gigs after that. So yeah, True Believer is definitely a really good film. Uh, worth watching, even though once I became a lawyer, I realized like most courtroom scenes, whether A Few Good Men or True Believer, um, every single thing the lawyer said would have been overruled. Um, they they just go off script for some reason. But anyway, other than that, yeah, I think he's a talented guy. He's done some really good movies. Yeah. Sleeping with the Enemy has some, some really great scenes in it, especially the ending. So um, yeah. I. So what else do we want to talk about? Anything else we want to talk about before we rate and recommend this sucker?
2: i think i got to most of my notes um i i don't i don't know if you got you i know you said you had a uh copious amount of notes jackson that you can't read I, i'm sort of in the same pickle at the moment uh, yeah. but <laughs> i will say this was shot in vancouver and apparently it was freezing cold it was late fall so they shot it when it's supposed to be taking place but it, so when you brought up the 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 was scooter vesper whatever the thing was yeah. that they were freezing cold. It was apparently just, they didn't say what the temperature was, but apparently, and if you look at him, he, you could see it on his face. Like for, if you pay attention when they're, when she's Uh, talking, I got to give credit where credit's due, man. Stephanie, that big, beautiful smile, the girl next door beaming, like she held it together. Cause I, you could just tell it is got to be freezing. And I'm from Florida. So if it's like above 65,
1: yikes, it's crazy. (laughs) <laughs> so you're saying if they'd had, you know, too much coffee or water it would have been a dumb and dumber. Situation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the snow would have been frozen <laughs> in their face. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All righty. Well, us, Jackson. Do you have anything else you want to add, buddy, before we move on to our ratings and recommendations?
0: I just have one note, and this is kind of a funny thing. Uh, you're going to tell me that nobody noticed Jerry was wearing a toupee the entire time he was with Stephanie (laughs) and Susan. I don't feel like that's plausible. I feel like at some point Uh, they would have been like, what are you, what are you doing there, buddy? I mean, we, we see that, uh, Susan and Jerry tussle around in bed. I'm sure she, I don't know. I,
1: now I don't watch TMZ or that kind of stuff. So maybe they picked up on this, but nobody else has. Um, so this morning before church, Megan and I are getting ready. And they're doing a thing on, I think it was CBS Sunday morning or something like that. And they're showing pictures of Joe Biden back in 1987 when he first ran for president. And I've met Joe Biden several times when I worked on Capitol Hill. Always, no matter what your political leanings are, he was always a very nice man, very warm. Never remembered who I was. Asked me, who are you, young man, about three times. Um, (laughs) But he had almost no hair. He has three times the amount of hair in his (laughs) 70s now than he did in the 80s and 90s. The guy's obviously either wearing a toupee or has hair plugs. And nobody has ever commented on the fact that he has a comb over in 1987 and a full head of gray hair in 2020. You know what's
2: funny? Now that you say that, I never even thought about it. You're right. He does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's obviously either had work or a toupee, one yeah. or the other. It, and looks, so-
2: it looks natural. I mean, credit or credit. So that's why I didn't think about it. Looked, and, I, and that's coming from a follically phallic, challenged individual. So uh, I would notice. You know, we yeah. notice things. But I, I did. It's funny you guys bring that up. But I, I did one note that I was able to decipher here. Speaking of a logic problem, and I believe in the comments they called it. I guess Hitchcock would call it icebox logic, meaning there was the kind of thing you'd see the movie, you'd love it, and then you'd be home late at night getting a you know a, a sandwich at one o'clock in the morning at, at the quote unquote icebox, telling you how dated that reference is. Right. That and, and it hits you with, wait a minute, if he did this, then how did that happen? And apparently, the one they point out that I I've seen this movie so many times, I never even thought about this. Explain this one to me, Jackson. Like, follow follow the logic here, okay? How we we see. Jerry, do like you said. He takes the two pay off. He's now going to have the you know the the receding hairline for this new character he's playing. I can't remember what the guy's name was, but the new one he's going to be, and you know the glasses, the whole different getup, right? So that's what he does, and then he goes and he puts himself into that life. He immerses himself, and then he kind of goes back and forth, back and forth. Correct? Like that's how he does his shtick. How did he, as Morrison, with a beard, he had to shave? Get into Susan and Stephanie's life as freshly shaven, different haired Jerry Blake. Right. You would have had to grow the beard back every time. <laughs> His family. Now, it was obviously a fake beard, and you could tell that in the movie, but he does shave it. So the implication was yeah. it was a fake beard. It was a real beard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Jackson, any thoughts there? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I did think about that briefly. The thing I actually thought about was he's got that, that really long shaggy hair. Yeah. And that then should- he's got, yeah. Yeah. And then he's got the toupee and with the balding underneath it. Uh, My only thought is maybe in a year, he balded really quickly. I'm not sure how that works. But I didn't didn't even think about that, too, because he cuts his own hair. So it's as if that's his hair. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Um, Also, another thing I noticed, (laughs) I can't remember, was he putting the contacts on or taking them off? Either way, he was wearing contacts for one identity. Is he really going to do that for years on end?
2: Yeah. Jerry Blake wears, he put contacts in to be Jerry. but Yeah. Yeah, he would have had to wear them perpetually.
0: Yeah, and nobody ever noticed that he had to. I mean, I imagine if you leave them in that long, it's gonna start to g- cause some irritation there. So you, <laughs> he to- he totally take them out every night, and and one night Susan w- looks at him and then she's like, "Why are your eyes a different color?"
1: Maybe you know he he took them out at night and told his wife that he's just a big Corey Hart fan and he wears his sunglasses at <laughs> night. <laughs> uh, I think that's it.
2: That's the right time. That's the right time for that.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. So I, I feel like this is redundant again, but Joel, on a scale of one to ten, what would you give this?
2: It's it's so cute you felt the need to ask me, Matt. That's so <laughs> cute. Uh it, it it's a solid 10. I'd go, I'd go uh, turn to I'd pull a spinal tap and turn it up to eleven if I could. It's a ten out <laughs> of ten for me. It is an own it, uh, even on laserdisc, which I do.
0: Wow.
1: That's above and beyond, man. So Jackson, what about you? I'm interested in this because you're a
0: hard you're like Jay of the Dead. You're you're a tough critic. So, I don't give quite as many sixes as Jay of the Dead, I would say. But yeah, <laughs> I am I I'm a little bit tougher because I don't have that nostalgia nostalgia factor for it. This is my first time seeing these movies. I'm going to give it an 8 to an 8.5. Uh I would say that the strengths of it out, outshine the the weaknesses. And, yeah, I would definitely call this a high-priority stream on Tubi. If you want to buy it, if you like it, I would recommend buying it because it is one that I'll be seeing again sometime. But, um, yeah, 8 to 8.5, i definitely recommend you see it if you haven't already. Yeah, I'm at a solid 8.5. That's what I gave
1: my uh, original Letterbox review. Um, I do call it a buy. If I can find that, if it's still in print, that Shout Factory Blu ray that Joel's talking about, I'm definitely going to pick that up because I would like to watch the commentary on this. And so, absolutely. So, yeah, I will watch it again. It is on Tubi, but I do plan on buying it. So, Joel, where can they find you online, buddy?
2: Well, they can find me at Retro Movie Geek, of course, and Terror on the Tube, where we cover made-for-TV horror movies from the 70s, 80s, and at least one time, we've covered one from the 90s, <laughs> so <laughs> we've got that going for us. And of course, Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies, yep. and be sure, because I, I realize as, as this goes out that it'll already be out there in the world of podcasts, is the Werewolf the TV series. The podcast that I did with my good friend Hammond, uh, we covered the entire series. It ran on Fox for pretty much one season from '87 yep. to '88. Uh, I know you were a fan of it, Matt, which yep. I thought was super cool. And uh, yeah, so he and I both were huge fans of that TV show, and we said, "Yeah, you know what? We need to do something to to talk about that to champion this little show that a lot of people don't remember."
1: And screw Mike and the Mechanics, or otherwise we'd probably have a Blu-ray of it right now.
2: I <laughs> think the reason why, because I knew it was a, I knew it was a band. Uh,
1: I think so. Yeah, oh,
2: so. dang it. I like that song, too. Uh. Yeah.
1: Makes and me they're nice. not even obviously dancing to that song in the opening scene. <laughs> There's something else going on. Um, but yeah, definitely check out those podcasts. All of them are great. Go on YouTube. You can find the Werewolf series on there if you don't know what he's talking about the 80 series werewolf. I think all the episodes are on YouTube. Last time I checked,
2: they were when we were doing it. And then the guy who had them on there, I don't know if he got like nailed with a copyright notes, because what around that time, there was an announced that finally we were getting a box set. And I was like over the moon. Literally we had uh, like only like, a few episodes left to record. And we find out this box set drop. I was like, this is a perfect time. And it was going to drop in October. And that's when the show was going to drop. Yeah. We find out it's a uh, f- uh, France, Amazon only. And I tried to order oh. and they wouldn't send it to me.
1: Oh, that sucks.
2: Yeah, it does suck. So I need to get Peter. Uh, to get me a copy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need to have happen. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think to last I checked, they were on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, hypothetically, I may know of another way to get them. Hypothetically, allegedly, I can neither confirm or deny <laughs> anything. So if anybody ever wants to, you know, get those, you know, uh, you know, yeah. look, that's all I'm saying
1: yeah yeah it is worth watching and then listening watch the episodes then listen to the podcast so all righty well we want to thank our patreon supporters including joel and listeners for only two dollars and fifty cents a month although we have levels you can get access to bonus episodes which jackson and I are getting ready to record another one this week you can pick movies or themes or be on as a guest and you'll be helping to put jackson through film school here in the next year or so um and you can also find more at fatherandsonhorror We're on Twitter as at fathersonhorror, and we have a closed Facebook page. Jackson,
0: where can they find you, buddy? Yeah, on Twitter I'm at Kane underscore hero twelve. That's K A I N E underscore hero twelve. Uh, on Letterboxd, I'm at Kane hero. Um, if you want to see my review for The Stepfather, I'm sure I'll think of some funny quip to put before my rating on there. Uh, but but yeah, you can check me out there. Also check out Father and So Much Horror Movies on YouTube. Uh, every, every so often I, I think of a video idea and I put that up there. It goes up first on Patreon. This, this month, I'll actually just say right out the gate, uh, I am watching every Universal Frankenstein movie and I'm going to be doing a series review. I anticipate this video being like 45 minutes long or something, uh, sure. but I'm going to be doing a series review. That'll go up first on Patreon and then on YouTube, but... Yeah, so check that out if you want to. And, yes, check out all these great podcasts we mentioned. There are friends Our horror podcast friends are very supportive as we got into all these podcasting ventures. And, uh, yeah, just a great community. Absolutely. And so uh,
1: I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd as at Pastor Matt R. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. And also along with those videos, something tells me, Jackson, you may have a hankering to do because I know you're getting ready to do a video for your— um, film school applications Mm -hmm. um so but to be watching for that possibly also something tells me you may be doing a godzilla episode on youtube because you already spilled the beans i bought him joel the criterion box set of godzilla for christmas so
0: So, yeah absolutely so i'm going to educate myself (laughs) there
1: you go so We will continue our theme next time, but I uh, can guarantee that a few films that are in contention include Hereditary, House of a Thousand Corpses, and a few others. So thanks for being on, Joel, and Jackson, say goodbye to the good people.
0: Goodbye, and remember to heed this movie's message. Never associate with anyone who looks even remotely like Terry (laughs) O'Quinn. Yes,
1: (laughs) all right. All right, folks, until then, remember the family that watches horror together slays together. See you next time.